And I just want to begin, actually, with that final verse of the Revelation passage and a personal reflection. So the verse at the end, we hear it each time God expresses, addresses a particular church. Page 244, let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I hope that we are in this series listening, not to something that's historical, but to what the living Son of God might be saying to us as individuals and to us as a church today. And I have to say that I have found uh, these early chapters of Revelation, and I think the whole of Revelation is quite challenging, but I find them hard to read and to fathom accurately the imagery, the language, the personification is really quite countercultural, hard to hear and understand. But I have found over the last few weeks in conversation, uh, walking with friends about how we practice faith and hold ourselves to it. Through the discussion in my life group or our life group on Monday, and especially in preparing for this particular talk on this particular uh, address to the church in Thyatira, I'm not sure whether I'm right, that's just how I've always said it, (laughs) Um, that I've become increasingly aware of specific scenes situations, attitudes and actions that are shameful. It's not that I haven't confessed them in the past, but it's as though, uh, and even as I lay down to sleep uh, in the last few minutes before I went to sleep last night, the Lord was showing me scenes in my life from a slightly different perspective. I was seeing them from outside from the people who were affected or saw my actions. And the shame of them came home to me in a new way. In other words, I feel as though as I've wrestled with the graphic language of Revelation and this idea of Jesus walking through and observing acutely his church and his people, the Lord has reminded me, chastened me, with the reality and long-term implications of my behavior. And the worst of it, most of the things I remember doing that shame me, I've done since becoming a Christian, not before. Which, when I think about it, is really terrible. So I was deeply grateful this morning for the confession, the freedom to come to God and say, I see now yet more clearly how deeply compromised and able to give license to myself I have been, even as a Christian, and to receive forgiveness pronounced by Francis. So I just invite you to join me in prayer that the Lord might speak to look at, reveal to us things 
about our lives. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for your word, though it's hard to read sometimes. We ask that today, more than ever, we might hear your voice, your truth, aware that you are the living Lord Jesus who promises forgiveness but speaks truth, who sees everything accurately and judges, judges heart and mind. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us today? In Jesus' name. Amen. I dearly love you to have Revelation 2 open on page 244 as we just look at the structure and the detail of this fourth letter. And I do think uh, we are meant, uh, just as Jesus was clearly addressing his churches and striding through them acutely aware of their state, We're to imagine the living Lord Jesus here too addressing us through these revelations. The words and powerful images, particularly in this particular address to Thyatira, are quite um, difficult, as I said. And we need to remember that, that, that the Lord Jesus is teach, speaking to a first century Christian community as it grows up in the middle of a Greco-Roman world and cultural norms that are really hard for us to understand, though if we pause and think about it, we live in a similar, less than Christian perspective and culture. So they're growing up in the face of something that doesn't reflect the core of who they are. So I'd like us just to try and make sense of what's said in their context and then in ours. And we'll look first at the one who speaks, then at what he knows, sees, affirms, encourages. And this is a pattern for each of these letters. What grieves or concerns him and how deeply which often leads to the graphic language, what he asks of them and us, and what he promises them and us. So let's just have in mind who speaks. In chapter 1, a loud voice like a trumpet says, write in a book what you see to John. And then that person the Lord Jesus, is described the voice who spoke to me holding in the months the lampstands uh, is the son of man clothed with a long robe with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair are white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a burning flame of fire. His feet were like burning bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and he holds the stars, uh, and a two-edged sword comes from his mouth. So this is an awesome picture 
of the risen Jesus. In in the address to Thyatira, verse 18, uh, the bit of that that's picked out is these are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, the Son of God turns his searing gaze I think we understand that phase, don't we? Upon that Christian community. He sees truly burning away all impurity and excuses. And I think we often think of a, in a very Victorian way of Jesus rather meek and mild. And we want in today's society for Jesus to be loving as if that were the only thing. And we forget that John the Baptist introduced Jesus as he will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. In other words, there's something inherently purifying and exposing of the truth in who Jesus is. And lots of the prophecies speak of him bringing uh, justice as well as peace. Now I think... uh, we can probably go from that image presented then to the same image of Jesus now. This remains an accurate vision of Jesus, certainly more accurate um, or an important balance to our tendency of mindset to think that Jesus was all-loving. Well, when you think about it, what was his message? What's the first word of Jesus' message? Repent. That's what Jesus proclaimed. Turn around, change your mind, change your actions, repent, seek forgiveness, because the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. He didn't say, I love you, you're welcome. He may have behaved like that, treated people with honour and dignity, but his message was about change. So we need to listen to the one who, if he walks around, looks closely at the way we live, has a right to call us to account. And indeed, as God comes close, says repent to us. Confident that we can, as this morning I said I have. Then notice... What in this passage he knows, sees, affirms, and encourages. Verse 19. I know your works. That is, your labours, your efforts. This sort of all-encompassing word. And he then identifies four things. I know your love. I know your faith. I know your service. I know your patient endurance. And I know that your last works are greater than the first. The very opposite of what he said uh, to the church in Ephesus. And again, I think with this, it's fairly easy to go, well, that was what he said to them. Does he say the same to us? And the answer is, I think, yes, he does. He knows. And we can... need to hear this directly today. Not to miss it, 
or to skip over it or make light of it. Those of you who, in all sorts of hidden ways, demonstrate love and care, whether it's for those in the church or for those elsewhere. Those of you who help uh, with uh, ABC, whether it's cooking or tidying or running a group, but very few people know who you are or what you do. Those of you who visit the sick, maybe as part of the pastoral team or just as a good neighbour, who offer lifts, who pray with other people. Those who give secretly of their time and their money, if that is you. Those who face adversity and testing with prayer and faith. Those of you who endure suffering or opposition or ridicule or illness. Those of you who serve him and do your work daily as to the Lord. The Son of God knows, affirms, encourages this. And if you are growing as a disciple because you're taking seriously prayer or reading the Bible or coming to church and you are growing in what it means to be a disciple, the Son of God knows and says you've moved from here to here and that is good. So in what appears quite harsh, we read it, we pick up on all the harsh stuff, the Son of God is deeply affirming of all the things that nobody else knows that you do, that honour him. So let's move on to what concerns him. Verse 20. It tends to be one thing for each church. This I have against you, but it's, it's, it comes out of... Uh, a love and concern and it's something that he feels deeply because this is the one who in chapter 1 verses uh, 4 and uh, 5 and 6 is Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead to him who loves and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priests serving his God and Father this is the one who grieves when his people are going awry or misled So it's a serious concern. What's his serious concern for this particular church? And this is graphically described, and I think we need to be incredibly careful to understand it in its context. Uh, So uh, this is, uh, there appears to be a woman, verse uh, 20. Uh, She calls herself a prophet. She's teaching and beguiling. Her name is Jezebel, and immediately that takes the hearers back to the Old Testament story of the Jezebel who opposed Elijah, who recruited prophets, who practiced all sorts of occult uh, things, who was steeped in worship of Baal, an absolute enemy of God. So it's very graphic language. Who teaches my servants. So can you see? He's concerned about you, his servants, not being misled to practice fornication and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I mean, I think the translation tends, you know, it's difficult to work the translation. It is possible because this was the culture of the context 
that he is precisely talking about people being led into worship of idols and into uh, promiscuity that's relinked to the, um, the worship in the temple. So it may be precisely that's what he's saying, or it may be that this is figurative of being led astray. And we need to be careful, therefore. We'll come in a moment to what that has been to us. But what I then notice see, immediately, so he's, he's concer- what's he concerned about? He's concerned about a prophet who is false. He's talking about somebody who leads into corruption, uh, who teaches his servants to practice things that are not of God, which is impurity and idolatry. And who purports to be saying, well, this is the source of, this is what the gospel is really about. And you have a freedom to do anything because God loves you anyway. And that's a lie, the Son of God is saying. And it's a deceit. And it's wrong. Before I come to, well, what might this mean for us today, uh, let's just see what, what does he ask of the hearers? Because, you see, I think it's really important to notice in verse, uh, amidst all the graphic language of verse 22, beware, so it's a warning, I'm throwing her on a bed, what it means is a bed of sickness, so she will be afflicted with sickness. Those who commit adultery with her, that's, who follow her, I'm throwing it to great distress. I think it's more, yeah, it may be real, but it, it may be just the graphic language of compromise. I'm throwing it to great distress unless they repent of her doings. Look at verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses. I will throw them down unless they repent her doings. In other words, what is the concern of the Son of God? It is that people are called to repentance, to changing their mind, seeing what they're doing, seeing the compromise uh, that has us us seeing the compromise that has us uh, in, in its thrall and turning in repentance. To whom? To the one who shed his blood that we can be certain of forgiveness. So it does not matter what we suddenly see or own or feel or recognize about the way we are behaving. The one who calls us, calls us to repentance and offers us forgiveness in his name and through his blood. So we should be able to have the courage to face anything, be humbled. So before I move on, that's the first thing he asked them. What might this image of Jezebel and the being misled into the practice of impurity uh, and sacrificing to idols or eating of food uh, sacrificed to idols be about for us today well I do think it is about um, idolatry and immorality and letting them shape the way we live 
and think. Francis and I watched a programme yesterday, starting a new series we thought might be good. It's got great actors in it. I don't think we're ever going to watch it again. Because the content is just... um, corrupted, horrible, when you actually look at the values that are being expressed. And that is true of much of our television, isn't it? That's true of much of our advertising, that it's corrupting. It's the language of the age. 20 years ago, you had to go to particular places to gamble. Now, you are encouraged to gamble everywhere, all the time. We even have a supposedly raising money for charity model of taking money off people for profit and exploiting their need to be wonderfully rich and their lives transformed. Is that good? No, it isn't. We have uh, values of consumerism so deeply ingrained in our society that we always think we need more than we have. Always. Guaranteed, you will never have enough. But that's the language of our age. What are these lies that are part of our culture that we collude with and even coming into our faith here because the thing here is something about the Nicolaitans. It's about understanding grace as the liberty to do things and get away with them and not to worry about them. How easily we let that affect our attitude and our own standards. Well, it it doesn't really matter. God forgives me anyway is a lie we tell ourselves all the time. Or this scripture, this truth, doesn't really apply to me. I'm the exception that proves the rule. Or this is okay because um, God is love and I'm loving when I do this. All sorts of lies that pervert the standards we live by. And I wonder what the one because this is how he describes himself. All the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts. And I will give to each of you as your works deserve. The Son of God sees with searing insight into the way we live, the values we hold, the things we do, as a church and as a culture and as individuals. I wonder what he wants to show us and call us away from, that we compromise less and seek to obey him more. So he calls us to repentance today, I think, to a willingness to hold to Christian values and Christian truth and not to be drawn in by a more libertarian approach for ourselves and in our society. And what does he then uh, also ask of us? He asks us to repent, to come to him who is willing to forgive and pay the price that we might be forgiven. 
But he doesn't lay any other burden on these people in Thyatira or us. To the rest of you, to those of you here who do not hold to this teaching, who've not learned what some call the deeper things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To this wonderful gospel that Jesus loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. A study I did five years ago, very, very basic Christian study, highlighted something that has stayed with me ever since. It was looking at the topic of obedience. Remember Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. He said, go make disciples, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And it looked at obedience as obedience of thought, obedience of action, and obedience of word. We use it in our confession. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And the thing that was challenging was the call to be obedient in what I think. I can just about manage most of the time to delude myself that I get away with not doing the worst and most horrendous things. I try not to speak out things that are too unkind, though I fail a little bit. But it's the thought, the compromise, the attitudes, the things I allow myself to see and think, things that shape my mind. Being obedient in that is really tough. And yet that's what we are called to as Christians. Jesus did not lower the standard. He raised it, Matthew 5. I think in this Revelation 2 passage, with this image of the Son of God moving amongst us, seeing precisely and clearly with his searing gaze everything we do and everything we are, There is a profound challenge and call to be holy as our God is holy and to repent wherever we fall short and to discipline ourselves in word and deed and in thought to let the spirit inform and direct all three. Father, take my words and what is of you, lodge in our hearts, that we might be liberated and transformed by it. In Jesus' name. Amen.